2: Welcome in, I'm Rob Black, your money guru, your Buddha on the mountain, come rub my belly, my belly, 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 and uh, let's talk a little investing, let's talk some of the, the basic concepts out there, Um, and then we can get into some more complex things, you know, one of the basic concepts, you know, how much money do you need for retirement? One of the more complex concepts is, can you buy a new car in retirement? Because you no longer have income really coming in other than Social Security. And Social Security, for the average American, is about $1,300 a month. When you factor in healthcare costs, it's, it's basically a push. So what can you and can you not afford to do? And, like, how aggressive do you want to be with this? And how smart do you want to be with us? It's a damnation game. It really, really is. Um, I just want you to be cautious with it Um, because you only have, in my opinion, on this show, one life and then ultimately have to, you know, figure out what to do. Did you do it right or not? There's no big do-overs, if you know what I'm saying. 800-516-1220 to get your calls on the air. It's 800-516-1220 to get your calls on the air. Anything you want to talk about, we can talk about. So, saving money. I I think financially speaking, there's things that you have to talk about. There's how much money do you make. Should you get a better college degree than you currently have? Is a high school degree enough? Is a college degree that's wasted on you know, five or six years a smart thing to do, or are you really financially letting your parents down and letting yourself down? So the biggest thing that you can have from the age of 20 to 60 is your ability to earn income. And I don't think enough people stop and think about that concept. And, you know, again, in our 20s, we're kind of confused. We're kind of learning along the way. I know a woman that went to college, a great school. She's got a great job. She has a great career career and she wants to get married and have babies, which is fine. She wants to be a stay-at-home mom. But by the end of her career, would it made enough money to pay back that degree, or should she have just invested that money and found a husband? Could she possibly have known that's what she wanted in her early 20s? Or is that ridiculous, or was this a fallback plan in case Plan A didn't work? I know we're never, ever going to solve this, and I know we're never going to get to the point where we're actually saying... Yeah, maybe she shouldn't have. That's offensive, Rob. I know. But trust me, when you get a four-year degree in communications to walk into radio and television, that's changed now to podcasting and streaming, you're screwed. It's 130% true. You you weren't ready for it. One of the things that,
3: uh,
2: you know... I've got like an entrepreneurial bend in me. I've got a kind of, I don't like to work for the man thing, and here I am working for the man, same communications, thank you man, thank you. But I've also started businesses in the past, and I've done very, very well in my life and my career. Um, I just want you to be like really, really honest with yourself on some of these kind of big issues. Um, in large part, like I said, you don't really get a do-over. So start with some of the basics, you know, how much do you need for retirement? You know, you, the, the whole concept of a budget is critically important. Um, and I know it's it's not sexy. It's not fun in any way, shape, or form. But that's okay. Your income is your most important thing. So not only is your income going to fund your home, it's going to fund your vacations. It's going to fund your children, maybe, your, co- your children's college. Your income is also going to fund your retirement nest egg. Very, very important. So you got to save 10 to 15%. So that, that going back to college things is important. Because when you start thinking about, it, let's say you save, you know, 10%. Let's say you save, uh, I don't know, $10,000. So you make $100,000, you make save 10% per year in your 20s. and your. By the end of your 30s, you've saved a million dollars. Or by the end of your 20s, you've saved a million. And then 30 to 40, you save another $10,000 a year. It's another, you know, hundred thousand dollars. So you now save two hundred thousand dollars. From age forty to fifty, you save another ten thousand dollars a month. And I'm doing the math here wrong, <laughs> but that's okay. Um, so let's say you're. I'm trying to use big round numbers. So it's one hundred twenty thousand, one hundred twenty thousand. So now you, know you say two hundred forty. You save another one hundred twenty-three sixty. You save another one hundred twenty. That's four eighty. So okay. Now, that's not going to be enough for retirement from age 20 to 60 if you just put it in the bank. So you have to start looking for alternatives. Alternatives could be cash, no. You're getting 0% return on that. Bonds, you're probably getting 3 to 4%. That starts improving that, imp- that number. Then you can go with real estate, you get about 5%, but there's also costs associated with that. Taxes and upkeep and maintenance unless you go with like a real estate investment trust, which REITs are publicly traded, do not go after the private REITs, go after the publicly traded ones, and you're going to probably get a, a pretty nice return of about 6 7%, because you're going to get a business on top of the real estate, plus the real estate. If you don't know what REITs are, they stand for real estate investment trusts, and basically it was a, a mechanism designed by Congress in the 60s to allow people to save money and invest money into businesses that had real estate ties. So like if you were from upstate New York, like Syracuse, where there's nothing but like mosquitoes that are like eight pounds, there's, there's nothing going on there. But you wanted office properties in San Francisco, you wanted office properties in Chicago, office properties in New York. A real estate investment trust was that vehicle to do it. A company would get together and Congress would say, you real estate investment trust do not have to pay taxes as long as you share 90% of the profits with the investors. Okay. Now I get it. So there you get real estate exposure by owning 100 shares, you're done. You don't have a 30-year mortgage. You don't have that cost of, of mortgage cost. You don't have that you know that, that overhead cost. You don't have the maintenance cost. Um, you don't have to change your mortgage. If you miss a payment, you, they don't come and take your land from you. So a real estate investment trust, when you own 100 shares, you own 100 shares. And that's how most Americans should own investment real estate. But unfortunately, there's people that do shows on mortgages. There's people that do shows on real estate. There's people that do shows on infomercials. Do you remember the two midgets in Hawaii pushing real estate? And I say midgets lovingly, and there's probably tiny people or probably a better word. But when I was 20 years old and I was flopped on the couch eating Doritos in the middle of the night, and the commercial would come on, I'm like, whoa, there's two midgets with hot chicks that own real estate in Hawaii. They all have something to gain from it. They want you to buy a piece of property from them, do a transaction for an individual piece of property with them. They want you to buy condos in Dallas because they have a a deal with the developer. But the best thing you can do is buy publicly traded real estates, names like equity office properties, Boston properties. We're actually buying real estate, commercial real estate, and you own 100 shares and there's nothing more. You don't have to put any money down, you don't have to put, you know, come up with extra money, you don't have to, you know, um, no maintenance fees. Once you own the shares, you own the shares. Okay, so again, $120,000, $10,000 $10 saved for 12 months. You know, that comes up to about uh, $240,000, dollars 6% returns on real estate, not going to get you to where you need to go. So you need to go a little bit higher and go to the stock market. In the stock market, the double, money doubles every 7.2 years. So you can see how that original 120 dollars becomes 240 dollars It becomes, holy mackerel, you can see how it starts to all compound. And the most powerful part of compounding is time. So the original 120000 that you put in over 10 years is worth a lot more than the last 10 years when you're from age 50 to 60. These are some things that you've got to scratch your head and start thinking about. I'm Rob Black talking all things financial, money, investing, and more. <laughs> Black, thanks for listening. If anyone wants to call in with a story or an investment angle or praise, if you want to give me a tip, eight hundred five one six twelve twenty. 1220 it's eight hundred 1220 I'll take it. I'd like to get some of your feedback on occasion and your insights. One of the things that shocks me is how many people look for Buddhas and gurus. Keep in mind, I'm your Buddha, I'm your guru, you should look no further. Someone recently emailed me and said, hey, I heard on another show that the impending college debt tsunami is going to ruin America. I should stop investing. What's your opinion? I'm like, if you're going to listen to another show, don't ask my opinion. To be quite honest with you, because... There's people that talk financially speaking and I can I can tell you mortgage people, I can tell you real estate people, I can tell you people on TV, people on the radio, people in magazines. That you know just because you have a radio show or a television show or a magazine article doesn't make you an expert. They can tout you know, I've got a career in finance and look, I wear suspenders. I'm pretty the fool. The truth is, is you could have a whole career in money and finance and underperform. I'm basically ready to retire. I'm not trying to get a transaction. So please be incredibly cautious on who your Buddha and guru is. And yeah, if you don't think I'm taking into account college debt, you're crazy. Of course I take that into account. You take into account debt loads, you take into account spending, you take into account wage inflation... You take into account randomness. You know, Congress uh, at some point in time can get their act together and say, you know what, we see that all these big tech companies, all these big companies in America have a lot of money in foreign kits. Now, w- they don't want to be taxed at 35%, but we want a-, a windfall. How can we meet in the middle? Um, okay, so you repatriate money, none of it goes to stock buybacks, none of it goes to uh, corporate CEO compensation you have to put it into infrastructure buildings or R&D or something along those lines that brings jobs to America. And we'll lower the rate from 35% down to, say, 10%. Both sides win. Now, right now, you can't predict that. Um, right now, you, you could look at, like, the future of inflation and go, yeah, we expect 2% for the next five years, but you know what? If oil goes from 40 bucks to 400 bucks or 400 bucks to 40 bucks. That, that that whole picture is out the window. Now, of course, it's not going to do that. <laughs> That's what I love about tape, or even digital tape, in this case. Um, so anyway, be cautious. There's a lot of Buddhas and a lot of gurus out there, and like, if you're going to listen to too much, you're going to get too much noise. I refer to CNBC as financial porn, and, and I say that with, with no respect at all, <laughs> just like I'm actually kind of insulting the whole institution. Now, if they want to offer me a job, fine. As long as I can poop and, like, throw crap at the other hosts and and the content that's coming out of it, that's fine. (laughs) Not a big fan. Not a big fan of, like, bad advice. And, you know, I love Kramer and what he does. I think he's good overall. But, like, for him to say, like, it's a bye-bye-bye. It's such a confusing message to you. Because is he doing it? Is he not doing it? Should I do it? Should my grandmother do it? Should my grandchild do it? Should uh, you know my 28-year-old son do it? What's a buy, buy, buy mean? Does that mean I'm going to make you know, money, money, money over the three months, six months, nine months, 12 months, two years, five years, 10 years, 20 years? It, it, there's no definition there. So anyway, um, the number one most important thing for winning and as an investor, as my friend Charlie Sheen would say, winning. The number one thing... Clearly is hold on, I'm sorry, what did you say? Winning Oh, that's what I thought you said. The number one determinant factor for winning winning is time. It's not smart. it's not looking good. Looking good's great. Trust me, when I did a TV show and I do a TV show and um, you look good and you talk money, like, woohoo, that'll get you like instant gratification for a month or two. Maybe a year or two, maybe it'll get you a a model life that won't work out. But what works best over time, again, not good looks, not smarts, but time. Winning. Go take a look at a chart of the Dow Jones Industrial Average from 1900, 1906, and then take a look at it. Financial dudes typically have this in their office. But you can Google it. I know you've got fingers, and if you don't have fingers, you've got a nose. And if you don't got a nose, be that guy who can type with his toes. Which, for the record, typing with your toes is going to get you an Academy Award. So you might as well start practicing if you're an actor who's like 12 years old. Become a drunk, act like a drunk, act like a prostitute, um, maybe mentally challenged, and or if you can type with your feet, you're going to win the Academy Award. So if I was an actress, I wouldn't be doing to be or not to be. That's the question they ask me. Go the hardcore route. Start typing with your toes and impress the director. That's 130% true. So the most important thing is time. And I don't know how I got into toes, but let's just assume that there's a logical tie there. And I'll say time is the most important thing. Um, Oh, I said, no, go type the Dow Jones Industrial Average Chart for 100 years. And what you'll see is 1900, and like trust me, my, my facts on history are, are not the best. Somewhere in there, there's World War One, World War Two. There's a president assassinated somewhere in there. There's a president in a wheelchair. There's a nuclear bomb. There's Nagasaki. There's Hiroshima. There's a Korean conflict war. There's a Vietnam conflict war. There's oil at you know 150 dollars a barrel. There's people waiting in line in the 70s for oil. There's you know getting a mortgage at 14 15 percent. You think about that now, and you've got it good. Back when I bought a house in the 70s, my mortgage was 15%, and I was happy to have it. We didn't have feet. We couldn't type on a computer, because computers weren't even around back then. Well, they were around, but they were only military. They didn't have them in the home. But we had 15% mortgages, and we were happy. But we didn't have feet, which made it really difficult to walk two miles to school in snow. But we didn't have snow either, so we were happy. Okay, um, so how long you stay invested is the most important thing because if you look at that chart and you look at all those terrible things that happened, World War I, World War II, President Kennedy, Reagan, people getting assassinated, high inflation, stagflation, oil shocks, um, Korea, Vietnam, you know, uh, Iraq War I, Iraq War II, 9-11. Look at it. It goes slowly up and it starts in the lower left corner and it goes to the you know, upper right corner. And you don't notice those, those events like World War One, World War II. You don't notice those things like Kennedy and, and Reagan. You don't notice those things like Martin Luther King and civil rights. You don't notice events in America and the world that were shocking. It works over time. And if you don't buy into that, screw you. I don't know what else to say. I don't know what else to say. A hundred year chart tells the truth. Over time, this thing works through all sorts of crazies, even college debt. I'm Rob Black. I'm Rob Black, talking all things financial, money, investing, and more. Trying to blend some common sense with you, and um, getting you to retirement. Um, holy mackerel! Eight hundred five one six twelve twenty. It's eight hundred five one six twelve twenty to get your calls on the air. I guess it seems like the last couple of segments have been taking shots at gurus and buddhas. And I think rightfully so, because just because I have a radio show, you shouldn't trust me. You should trust that I have a, a 19, 18 year career. I've done this for a long time. And I'm not a tout. I'm not one of those people who will say like, did you have a strategy in an up market? Did you have a strategy in a down market? I did. Ninety ninety, boo, boo. Stick your head in. I'm not that guy. There's a guy out there who does that. Or hey look at me. I talk to these other people who are experts. I do a little bit of that. I talk to the guys at briefing.com because I think they're common sense. If you ever listen to them, they're not like giving you like, hey, come do a transaction with me. There was an economist. And believe it or not, I find economists sexy. It's called the dismal science just being an economist. The dismal science, wow. What I learned a long time ago is there's no right answers. There's just compromise. And that's how you can start eliminating 50% of these gurus and buddhas out there, people who are trying to tell you definitively. Economist Alfred Cowles, and my favorite economist, just so you know, if I were to do a side business, if anyone wants to do this with me, it's economist trading cards like you get these economists from like the 1900s and early 1900s mid 1900s and like you can get like different ones and you know you can start getting into uh modern portfolio theories and things like that and you can you can do a lot of fun with like economist trading cards wall Street trading cards um it, but economist uh, my favorite guy, economist a guy named joseph Schumter he once called capitalism creative destruction and once you just Get that concept in your head for one minute and digest it, and drink it down like like a milkshake. And you're like, that's good. You see that? Yeah, we're gonna go through periods of time where our banks implode, where our housing market implodes. We're gonna go through periods of time where our tech stocks go woo to the moon. We're going to the moon. Uh oh, tech sector explodes. That's the sound effect I could have used exactly 15 seconds ago before I tried to make one up on my own. Okay, so the rocket to the moon, and it's looking good, it's looking, and then it explodes. That's 98, 99, and oh, crap, 2,000 comes along. Or, woo, I own real estate 2002, 2003, 4, 5, 2006, it's all been repossessed and foreclosed. <laughs> on your upside down and your mortgage, yo, the bank, more than the house is worth. Creative destruction, but do you want to own real estate over time? Hell yeah, in the right areas. Do you want to own stocks over time? Hell yeah, if you're diversified and you can dollar cost average and you can take a look at it, is that you don't have the maintenance costs that you have on real estate? There's always going to be implosions. But anyway, Joseph Schumpter, Creative Destruction. I believe in that. that, And again, you could use it on a lot of levels. Like you could look at the tech industry. And I remember a day. Do you remember compact computers? Probably not if you're under the age of 35. There's Dell computers. There's compact computers. There's HP computers. Um, IBM had the awesome ThinkPads. And then slowly but surely, like, they were competing with each other and, you know, it kind of created destruction. And, you know, Dell had to go private and, you know, will they come back public? You know, sure, that we're still buying desktops, but at one point in time, we could support five or six computer makers. Now you can support one or two. Creative destruction. It's not a bad thing. So, another economist I've studied, a guy named Alfred Coles. Alfred Cowles. He went through popular forecast, a popular analyst who had gained a reputation for successful forecast in in the early 1900s. He was one of the first buddhas and gurus on Wall Street. He made these forecasts in the Wall Street Journal. The Wall Street Journal is a hundred plus years old. That's pretty awesome. You, you you look at the United States and like you go to Boston and you go, that church is 160 years old. Whoa. But then you go to Europe and you're like, that church is 1,600 years old. It was made out of the bone of, of the slaves. And the monks practiced the, like hedonism there. And I, I, what? Like, that's a better history than our history. Paul Revere had a church 160 years ago? Whoa. And then you're like, there's a, a beach in Portugal. That When the water comes out, that's the only time you can get out to the monastery. And it was made out of bones. Like, who would make a, a, a monastery out of bones? Too much for me. But anyway, so Alfred Cowles looked through the Wall Street Journal in the early 1900s, and he studied this one forecast, you know, this one prognosticator, this one Buddha, this one guru. You know, who says, I am the great. This is what Wall Street's going to do. And he looked at 90 predictions in f- over a 30-year period. 45 of them were right and 45 of them were wrong. And he was the Buddha, the guru of the day. This is much more common than you think. Much more common than you think. And again, um, I'm not going to name names. Maybe I'll, I'll come out with an electronic book. That <laughs> names names at some point in mean, time. And now you're like, ooh, that's so decadent. An electronic book? Yeah, like a PDF. I'm going to come out with a three-page PDF that names names. Um, there's so many people. And like, all you have to do is like Google like Jim Cramer. And again, He's a guru. He's a Buddha, and he's gotten so much better over the last five years th- of toning it down. But he would make corrections like Bear Stearns at forty. It's an absolute buy. And John Stewart's famous for skewering them. If you haven't looked at the John Stewart Bear Stearns clip, of which John Stewart was probably about eighty percent correct, of which twenty percent was kind of off base. To be fair, and that's one of the problems with like popular news. Like most of America now gets their news from John Stewart. Most of the uh, people under the age of forty get their news from John Stewart, and it's it's written news. It's it's not reported news. It's written. Someone else did a story, and they take that story and they bastardize it and turn it into you know a second level event. So anyway, um, so that's kind of my, my Buddha guru thing. So if you go back in time, you could find like just historically embarrassingly bad calls. I remember I once bought a company called Exodus Communications. I was only about 15 years too early. Um, I once bought a company called Cryomedical Sciences. Exodus Communications was a company that built data farms. And basically, what Amazon is doing now with Amazon Web Services, they were doing 15 years ago. So if you wanted to start up a company, you didn't have to worry about the internet. You didn't have to worry about storage of your files. You didn't have to worry about your web page, where it was. They did all that for you. company shot up to the moon, and how shall we say, it blew up like a rocket at its exact wrong moment, and people remember me to this day for saying that I liked Exodus. Which, I didn't own it all the way down. Cryomedical science, and again, had I had that concept, had it, had they had better management, it would have been a home run. A company called Cryomedical Sciences, they froze tumors, prostate tumors. My dad died of cancer. Right around this time, 20 years ago, 25 years ago. And, um, 20 years ago. My dad died of cancer, um, When you, a tumor and, you know, you go through chemotherapy, go through radiation, it's horrible. At one point in time, my dad grabs his hair. And my dad was a military man, and my dad was a tough man, and my dad was an alcoholic, and he was not a man who showed a lot of emotions and didn't say, I love you. And it it, it guided me into what I'm not as a man today, not necessarily what I am. Uh, But some of the things that I'm missing, I miss an enormous sense of fun because he took that away from me. But at one point in time, he grabs his hair and he pulls it out, two big effing clumps just just unbelievably and like i'm like what the hell did you do that for and it was just this this amazing cry for like i'm struggling here um so please know like um i made a bad decision i got emotional on how bad chemotherapy is i got emotional about how bad radiation is and there's a company called Cryo Medical Sciences that had this little, like, I want to say a gun that you could take some pictures of the, the cancer and you could freeze it and you could cut it out. And it sounds like a great idea. And doctors ordered one round of it fantastically. And then they did not order another round because it was too difficult to implement and they are afraid of being sued. So I learned a very important lesson. And I, I did okay on that stock. I didn't lose my, my, my tukush. I know you have to be Yiddish to understand the show at times. Greatest part about it is I'm not Yiddish. I'm just using popular culture terms. Um, So I learned that doctors re-prescribing something is more important than first-time sales. So like when Pfizer's Viagra came out, it was the most re-prescribed drug of all time. The little blue pill. Um, Pfizer was a great investment in the 90s because of that. So anyway, where am I going at with all this, if I can tie this all into a bow? I probably can't. The Buddha's the guru's the mistakes that you make. Um, ultimately, you're going to have to be responsible for yourself, and you're going to have to take a little bit from everyone out there. I can admit some of my mistakes. Susie Orman can't admit hers. Have you ever heard her come out and say I was wrong? Jim Cramer's got a little bit better on it. Those are like two of the popular TV media gurus. I... I honestly would rather go into a room of, like, a gas that melts my body than have to watch Susie Orman. I think argon gas at some point in time could melt you. That's as bad as it gets out there in the world of financial media and Buddhism gurus. It probably gets worse, but I haven't found it. I'm Ron Black, talking all things financial money, investing, and more. So I'm kind of doing a a very raw Black thing and trying to say what's really on my mind, internal editor off. People that I really get tired of are the people that moan and groan. You go, know, yeah, I don't have enough money to save for retirement. And then they're at a Super Bowl party. They're at Valentine's dinner. They're buying their sugar booger and diamonds and going to Mexico and Hawaii. Yeah, I don't have enough money to save for retirement. If you can buy a bag of Doritos, you can save for retirement. And I'm tired of, of taking your lip on this. You're you're the problem, not me. It's not Wall Street. It's not the system's too expensive. It's You can't get off your couch without a bag of chips in your hand. And watching your Charlie Sheen, Two and a Half Men, worst show of all time in history, and yet it was one of the highest rated shows of its time? That's right, Jack. Something's wrong with America. When you go down the grocery aisle... And you learn, like, most Americans don't save much for retirement. Most Americans. You know, the average, you know, nest eggs is going to be what, like $160,000? That's going to be gone in three or four years in retirement, people. And then you're going to have nothing. You're going to have to eat cat food at a trailer park. <laughs> you're going to get what you deserve, but you're going to eat Doritos today. Oh, I just pulled something in my ribs. That one hurts. But anyway, that's what's really on my mind. And now you know. What's even worse is those of you who wait till like, you're 40 going, yeah, I think I'm going to start thinking about retirement now. No, 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 no. There's worse than that. I see people age 55 sending me emails like, you know, Rob, I, I know that this is kind of my fault. I haven't saved anything for retirement yet. Where should I start? Lose a lot of weight and get healthy. Put down the bag of Doritos. Consider working till the day you die. So find a job that that's going to work out for you. Um, I myself, let's say, I was 55 and I didn't have anything saved. I'd get skinny. I'd get my butt looking good. I'd get a good, nice pair of plumber pants, and I'd learn how to like fix people's plumbing. I would figure out some skill that I could take money under the table in my community to get us, you know, to stay as, stay afloat. The money under the table is kind of a direct shot at the IRS and the Social Security system and not paying taxes. I know it's not legal. I know it's not the right thing to do. But I'm telling you, a lot of people are going to run into retirement going, yes, yes, I had a great 30s. Oh, my gosh, let me tell you about it, Rob. I, you know, me and John Paul Getty, we hung out with this guy named Gatsby and know oh, the times that we had. Oh, it was awesome. Oh, the women. Oh, the alcohol. And now that I'm 55 and I've got nothing, I'm going to be eating cat food in a trailer park. Nothing wrong. Cat food is very, very nutritional. If you buy the right brands. Just uh, make sure you throw the cans away or rinse them out because ants tend to get into them in your trailer. And that's disgusting. You don't want to wake up one day with like ants on your face. They've gone through all your tuna fish. They've gone through all your cat food. So, I'm kind of going after the whole angle of there's no gurus out there, there's no buddhas, and there's only you. And you can't afford to be, you know, you have to max out your investing and you have to throw some of it in the stock market. There's no doubt about it in my mind, unless you're making five hundred, six hundred thousand dollars and you're going to have disposal income out the wazoo. Which I once had five dollars stuck in the wazoo. It was a nine hour surgery outpatient, but it was a nine-hour surgery. It's 130% true. Dan Gardner once wrote, no one can foresee the consequences of trivia and accident. And for the reason alone, the future will forever be filled with surprises. That's the beauty of Wall Street. You know what? I don't know what the hell is going to happen next year. I know capitalism is out there. I know that you know we've uh, done a pretty good job of creating jobs in the United States. It took us a long time, so it wasn't a pretty good job. It was a pretty pathetic job, but we did it. Very American. Don't keep score. <laughs> Just tell your kid that he's a winner. You know, yeah, it took us six years to get back to employment that's still substandard, but we're winners! Winning. Let's get us a trophy for everyone. Um. So I can't foresee the trivia of the accident out there. You know, the, a plane getting shot down over the Ukraine. You know, are you kidding me? Russia invaded it, like... Some of these stories, like, you couldn't make up unless you were, like, a spy novelist. Um, Saddam Hussein not having weapons of mass destruction and still saying, you know, screw you, you, and you can't come in here and see that I don't have weapons of mass destruction. He could have saved his own neck. Literally and figuratively. Like, that didn't have to happen. And yet, you know, oil spiked up on it and, you know, the world gets tense and the world starts to hate America more and, like, there's... You can't foresee this stuff. You just have to play along. And you honestly, you have to trust. Capitalism, investing in indexes is the way to create wealth, in my opinion. You know, from 2002 to 2012, Apple increased 6,000%. That's pretty awesome. Do you want that? Who wants 6,000% returns on Wall Street? On Apple, from 2002 to 2012. But it declined in that 10-year period, 48% of all trading days. So there was days where it was down, that bothers a lot of people, It doesn't bother me. Buy great companies, buy great companies with great product, buy great companies with increasing sales, buy great companies with increasing earnings. If they miss a quarter or two, was your target a quarter or two, was it a year? You have to be patient and you have to like learn to cut like, you know, some of the, the drama out of your life, save the drama for your mama. And I don't know what that means but I'm going to catchphrase it just so I can save it from Taylor Swift catchphrasing it and copywriting it. Do nothing are the two most powerful and underused words in investing. The urge to act has transferred an inconceivable amount of wealth from investors, stockbrokers. Do nothing sometimes. Panic and do nothing. I'm Rob Black, talking all things financial, money, investing, and more.
4: So call in, we'll chat, and uh, have some fun. Now, to start your day with the latest news and market commentary, here's Rob Black on the Wall Street
2: Business Network. Good day, good day, good day. I'm Rob Black, talking all things financial, money, investing, and more. I want to talk about some of the, the basics of investing in money and do it in the way only that I can do it. I think people make mistakes. I think people make it more difficult than they can. I think people make mistakes by looking for a Buddha or a guru. And typically, those journeys within, the hero journey, where, you know, a young man pulls a sword out of a rock and he goes to save his people, or a young man goes off to the West to find some sort of medicinal herb to come back and bring his people great power. I get it. I get that you want to be a hero, but did you know that in investing in getting towards retirement of getting to age 60 with a million dollars plus liquid investments, no investment points, no brownie points are awarded for difficulty or complexity. Simple strategies typically lead to outstanding returns. Can you grasp that? Can you dig that man that you don't have to be a hero that you don't have to listen to? 15 different gurus that you are the guru. Whoa! I'm the guru? Yes, you're the guru. Now what you can do along the way is is find people that that are wise. That don't complicate things for you. That give you a good piece of advice. Hey, don't go out and spend $30,000 on a wedding. Trust me. 50% chance it ain't going to work. On top of that, horrible investment. That $30,000 can become $60,000 in your 30s. That $60,000 can become $120,000 in your 40s. That $120,000 can become $240,000 in your 50s. That could become half a million dollars by the time you retire. All so that you could have really crappy chicken and maybe some sort of cold seafood dish. So that you could have, you know, a, a drink tickets that you hand out or that you could have an open bar because you're that kind of cool person. I don't have a want to have a wedding if it's going to be a, you know, people don't get trashed. I want people to get trashed at my wedding. I want them to have a good time. So you don't get points for being complex. You get points for being simple. You need to you know, start looking at your budget you need to start looking at your life. Simple strategies, maxing out your 401k. You're not paying federal taxes on it. woo You're not paying taxes. And I'm not going to jail for saying that. It grows tax free. You don't pay capital gains taxes. woo And I'm not going to jail for that. The IRS isn't going to come shut me down because you're maxing out your 401k, your 403b, or 457. And then later in life, you're hopefully taking it out at a slower rate than you're earning it now. Now you're in your peak earning years. In retirement, you're like, yeah. So that's a simple strategy. Investing in good index funds that are low cost, Russell 2000, Wilshire 5000, SP500, Vanguard's got some great international funds. I, I don't know what 401k you're in, but it's not that difficult to find low cost, diversified exposure. If it's difficult for you, there's a chance you were dropped as a baby. It's not that difficult. And I apologize to all dropped babies. Someone's going to write a letter to the management. My sister was dropped. Mark Twain once said about truth, he said, a lie can travel halfway around the world while truth is putting on its shoes. That's the problem with investing. People think it's complex, and it's really not. Warren Buffett once once said, how can I become a better investor? And there's a stack of annual reports in front of him. He said, read 500 pages a day like this. I read about 500 pages a day. My eyeballs hurt by the end of the day. There's days that I don't. There's days that I listen to conference calls. There's days that I listen to you know, economic forecasts. That's how knowledge works, as Warren Buffett said. It builds up. It's like compound interest. All you can do, you know, I guarantee, you know, no one's going to read that 500 pages. Like, I'm not smarter than you. I outwork you. You may have a better tukish than me because you outwork me. You definitely have a better six-pack abs than me, but I have definitely better investment knowledge than you. So there's two things that make an economy grow, population and productivity. With those two things, everything else is a function of those two drivers. So that's why we look at the millennials so fascinating at this point in time because they're the next engine of our economy, and they're not having a lot of kids. And babies equal do re me, They equal the cash register. They equal the economy moving. You need population to get the economy going. You need productivity to get more out of that. If Americans had as many babies from 2007 to 2014 as they did from 2000 to 2007, there would be 2.3 million more kids alive today that's going to affect the economy for decades to come. Because, like, uh, everyone that I know has an iPhone. These 2.3 million kids that weren't born in the last seven years, they're not going to have iPhones because they weren't born. How can we have an economy if we don't have iPhones? So we need a baby boom. Or something along those lines. Now Again, I'm not hollering panic. I'm not going to holler panic. It's not what I do. In no way, shape, or form am I that guy. Panic, 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 panic. But it's you do study demographics, and you do look at the parts of the world that are adding more population than us. You do look at parts of the population, world population that have more kids in college than us. Kids in college, uh, yes, there's a lot of kids in college doing poetry. And you, yes, I want to put a, a nail gun in their foot. Yes. Like, stop it! You, we don't need college poets! You haven't been alive but, like, two years intelligently. Don't tell me about your life experiences. So, where was I? Oh, we need college-educated kids. Because college-educated kids, except for the poetry majors, they create, they work in jobs. And jobs create taxes. It's like the one tax that we almost all can agree on. Like, you, you earn money, you should pay money. Now, we can't get together on the same page about, like, if you die... Like, didn't we once go to war with a country over double taxation without representation? Like, you paid money when you earned it, and now you're going to pay money when you're dead? Like, keep me on life support. That's the reason not to die. That's the reason to keep people well into their 150s. So, among Americans aged 18 to 64, the average number of doctor visits between uh, decreased from 4.8 in 2001 to 3.9 in 2010. Now, what's interesting about that is there's demographic numbers where we're like, America's getting older. They're going to go to the healthcare and the doctor more. But actually, as we got older, we went less because of a weak economy and the growing cost of medicine. We're like, I'll be okay. I'll be okay. Just give me a five minutes.
1: I'll
2: be okay. So you can't extrapolate behavior even for something as vital as seeing a doctor. Indefinitely. Behaviors change. Since last July, elderly Chinese can now sue their children who don't visit them often enough. Dealing with an aging population calls for drastic measures. I hate aging populations because we don't tax their income because they're not working. They take Social Security. They take Medicaid. They take medi They take any handout you can give them. They go through my trash and take bottles out of it. So, you know, Dealing with old people is not fun. Every now and then they get in a car and drive off a Santa Monica pier and kill people. Like, you shouldn't be driving. I have a right to drive. I fought for this country. Um, you shouldn't be paying nothing in taxes be- just because you've lived here for 40, 50 years. Prop 13, unfair to the community that wants police protection, wants fire protection, that wants good schools. Anyway, drastic measures on aging of population. woo. That's going to be something the world has to deal with. So maybe we don't want to have more kids. But no, no, we have to have more kids to support those old people. I'm Rob Black, talking all things financial, money, investing, and more. Thanks for listening to the show. Feedback, welcome. Rob at RobBlack.com. Rob at RobBlack.com. Find me on Twitter, Rob Black Show. Find me on YouTube, Rob Black Show. When radio or television gets tired of me and kicks me in the tookish, you'll find me at RobBlack.com. You'll find that I'll come up with new and innovative projects, whether they be video and audio-driven. So, just know that. Um there will be seven to 10 recessions over the next 50 years. So if you're 40 years old, by the time you hit 90, there'll be seven to 10 recessions. Recessions are not a bad word. Recessions are not the R word. We're not going to say it's a dirty word. Recessions are a great thing. To me, what recessions do is they curb excesses. They curb enthusiasm. So knowing that they're coming you should feel delighted and pleased. Voting for a president? Okay, wait, wait. Why do I like recessions? Because they curb enthusiasm. In 2000, when I moved to the Bay Area, I was a good-looking young man. I had a high-paying job, but I had spent the last 10 years creating that high-paying job. I was 30-something. So people who were 20 were getting out of college, and they had six-figure jobs, and they had done nothing other than have a pulse And they're showing up for the dot-com explosion at the right time and the right place. So I was suddenly competing with, like, younger men. Like, I had done everything I could to build my resume, to be, like, a good provider. Perfectly blue eyes. I was, like, chiseled. I was the ideal. And then, like, oh, you're kidding me. The dot-com era has come and has made me irrelevant. I'm a dinosaur at 30 with six figures. Two years later, car crash Crash on. Imagine a car crash out. Ah, the theater of the mind, radio. Um, and suddenly has a little bit more attractive. I pulled a Playboy model. Sweet! Like, in a good economy, in a great economy, somebody who's very solid, eh, there's other choices. In a tough economy, suddenly that solid looks a little bit better. A lot of people vote for the president to help the economy. Do you know how much influence the president has over the economy? Almost none. It's Congress. Just so you know. Just so you know. Did you did did I just get a fist bump? True thing. I did get a fist bump. Thank you, Mr. President. So those of you who are like I want to vote for change, you are m- mentally feeble. I've been living it. And or mentally dull. Which is worse, feeble or dull? You know, those are actually um. Part of the whole ranking of uh, IQ, part of the IQ test back in like the 40s, they would actually label you feeble, dull, moron. <laughs> Can you imagine getting a moron title? woo Maybe it's a step above dunce. but not by a lot. A um, couple things. There was a guy named Pascal, and he was one of those wise people who said wise things, and I've always said this: men, when you're looking to pick up, when you're looking to marry, women, when you're looking to marry a man, this is the test for the, the opposite sex. All men's miseries derive from not being able to sit in a quiet room alone. If your loved one, if your sugar booger, if you're betrothed, cannot sit in a room quietly and be okay reading a book, it ain't gonna work. You are setting yourself up for misery a lot of academic studies have shown those that trade stocks a lot earn the lowest returns so just being able to sit on your butt in a good index fund giving yourself a little bit of time it'll stop a lot of misery from happening same thing in love i know you're saying you are a stock guru you are the money man the money buddha but you're also the Love Doctor. Ladies, call the show. I'm the Love Doctor. 800-516-1220. Do you want to have the most special Valentine's Day ever? I have the secrets. And for just nineteen ninety nine over three easy payments, I will share those secrets with you. I'm the Love Doctor call now 516 1220 okay my one piece of love advice is don't fight over money learn how to talk over money also a back rub solves almost every problem okay and I've been with significant others who are like they're having like a tough day and I'll just give a little back rub and here's what I hear A little back rub solves all the problems. You don't have to actually listen to what they're saying. Either sex. I know you're saying, you're an amazing love doctor. Thank you very much. However much money you think you're gonna need for retirement, you need to times it by two. Now you're close to reality. For those of you who listen to real estate radio shows or television shows or podcasts or those of you who like, I know there's a real estate investment club. You know what my opinion of a real estate investment club is? Cue the vomit sound. Oh, we don't have a vomit sound. Okay. Theater of the mind. Here's my opinion of real estate investment clubs. Let's all get together. Kimba, ya, and hold hands and talk about how great real estate is. And I'm going to bring in some special speakers to talk to you who happen to be masquerading as experts, even though what they really are are real estate cheerleaders who happen to work in the industry, either as brokers or lenders or developers. And all they're here for is to get money from you, a transaction from you. Because if they were really good at investing, they wouldn't be talking to the average Joe public. Just so you know. They would be you know, presenting to venture capitalists. They wouldn't be looking for your little contribution. For many, a house is the largest liability masquerading as is a safe asset. I know a lot of people that learn that the hard way. And you know what? If you get a report card from age 20 to 60 on, you know, your financial readiness for age 60 to they all earned deaths because they thought they had hit a safe home run. The single best three-year period to own stocks, listen to this, was the Great Depression. When people were jumping out of buildings and killing themselves, the three best years right there. Not far behind it was 2009, after the economy struggled in utter ruin and the stock market crashed. When you're down 40%, 50%, that's a crash. And the best time to be buying and owning, right there. There's no, no, I'm not going to say there's no downside at that point in time. The biggest returns begin when most people think the biggest losses are inevitable. Or as Mike Tyson once said, he was asked to say the word inevitable, and he said, ineditable. No, no, it's, it's not inedible. It's inevitable. Inedible. Inedible? No, inevitable. One more time, the biggest returns begin when most people think the biggest losses are inevitable. Joining me now, Elvis Levan, Bay Area Entrepreneurial. Um, coffee business, a company called Artis Coffee in Berkeley, California. How are you, Elvis?
3: I'm doing well, Rob. How about yourself?
2: Good. Tell us a little bit about your your company that you're here to uh, kind of promote a little bit.
3: Sure, sure. So Artis Coffee is uh one year old as of December. Um We do something a little bit different. You go into most coffee shops, you can get a drink to go. But what we really focus on is roasting coffee in-store. So a lot of people don't know coffee is a fruit. We take them through that and roast them the freshest pound of coffee live while they wait.
2: I didn't know coffee was a fruit.
3: We're all learning something this morning.
2: Yeah, it's not that – I look at it like raspberry and blueberries as a fruit, but coffee bean would seem like it would break my teeth.
3: Yeah, it would, I mean, if you chewed on it, yeah. So the bean itself is the the seed of the cherry, the coffee cherry.
2: Okay, well put, because I once uh, told a story about drinking lemur butt coffee, where these (laughs) lemur monkeys would eat the cherry, and they'd poop out the the, uh, the coffee bean, and incredibly rare, only 100 gallons a year, and it was like 60 bucks for a cup of coffee, but I thought it was totally worth it. Am I crazy?
3: No, you're not crazy. It's a... really unique experience. Um, I've had that coffee a couple times. I can't say I've ever tasted anything like it in the entire world. So if anyone's curious, I'd just say go for it.
2: Okay, good. Now you start a coffee company and it's fresh roasted. That's that's obviously going to sell really, really well in the Bay Area. Um, we love our coffee. We hate Starbucks. We have you know kind of that promotional idea. We hate Microsoft. We hate the big evil empires. Uh, what was your background to, to get into this business?
3: Sure. Um, it was kind of like a long path, you know. Uh, it started out, um, I was actually working in e-commerce. I was selling motorcycle parts and accessories online um, and I really discovered that business could be creative and that you could try things and, you know, when you were doing well, you could get like really great instant results. And so. That led me back to school um, where I got an MBA, master's in business administration, and I met a guy who had an idea about this coffee company that he wanted to start. Um, And It was a really exciting idea because I'm a huge coffee fan myself, and so um, when he asked me if I wanted to be a part of that project, I was really happy to jump on board.
2: So you and a buddy come up with an idea. Let's say you're in his apartment How do you take that next step? Do you make a contract relationship with them on a napkin? Do you start writing up a business plan? What's that next step from great idea to business?
3: Sure. Um, You know, there are a lot of really small steps, and I think that's the thing. Um, I know a lot of people really want to start their own business, and I definitely recommend it. It's really exciting. Um, I think kind of the next step after, oh, I have this really great idea, Um, you don't need to jump into contracts or anything right away because you want to figure out, you know, whether your idea is going to be something that's really going to resonate with people. So I would say, you know, for anybody who has an idea about a business they want, if that's like a baked good that they think would sell really well in a grocery store, I would say the next step after having that really great idea is going out and telling everybody you know about it to see if it really resonates with them.
2: Okay. And did you do taste tests? Because, like, honestly, my palate on coffee is way different than yours. I'm not Folgers, but I don't think I'd recognize the difference between I, – and I have friends that are like, ooh, pizza is so much better than Starbucks. Ooh, this is so much better. Would I notice the difference between Artiste coffee and, you know, uh, like a Starbucks?
3: Yeah, totally. Um, people do every day. And, you know, your question about taste tests, yeah, we did a ton um, – we got a really small like, hobby roaster, and we started roasting coffee. We were roasting coffee for months before you know, we even had a space for the shop. So you know, it definitely pays off to get going and to start focusing on kind of what your thing is going to be. And for us, that flavor was really important. And there's nothing like freshness when it comes to things. A lot of people now, you know, they want to know everything about the food they eat, the produce they buy. They want to know if it's organic. They want to know where it's from, and they want it fresh. And so uh, we're, we're really just trying to do that for coffee.
2: You've got one store right now in Berkeley. How's it doing?
3: It's doing really well. Um, so uh, we just had our first year. Um, obviously, we found a really great fit for the market. Um, so we're about 40% above where we thought we would be a year ago. Profitable? Profitable, yeah. Profitable, um, covering expenses from day one.
2: Okay. How about living wages? Have you run into that argument yet with the whole California, Northern California? Biggest cost of business to you has to be labor, I would imagine.
3: Oh, it is. Um, And I think any business owner would probably tell you that. Um, A lot of them view it as a big expense, but also it's an investment because your business runs on your people. Um, So where we are in Berkeley... It has one of the higher minimum wages in the state. Okay. Uh, I think it just went up to 11.50, and it'll be going up to 12 I think, later this year. Um, but we were already above that in terms of the change, um, because sort of our philosophy when starting out was, you know, if we offer a wage where people can afford to get to work, you know, when they get there, they're going to be, you know, much happier, and they'll be able to focus, you know, on other things. They won't be worried about, you know, how they're going to get home or you know, whether or not they'll make rent
2: at the end of the month. 9 out of 10 restaurants fail in the first year, and then the next 3 years after that, 9 out of 10 fail again. It's very, very difficult to stay in business, and yet you've started with a profitable model year one. Congratulations on that. Thank you. When looking to expansion, is it easy because you've got a profitable business model, or are you still finding to get money either a loan or venture capitalists, are you finding that expansion cost difficult, or is it easier to navigate?
3: Sure, sure. Um, I mean, everything's challenging. Uh, going from one unit to two units, it's like running a totally different business. So we've really been trying to focus on uh, making sure that we're paying attention to the right thing. So making sure that you know our first unit continues to operate profitably while going after the second unit, um, and that's something I think to go back to or your question about, you know, what should people think about when starting a business, is when you're planning, is just to make sure that you're setting yourself up for success. You know, so watching things like your labor costs. And then that'll also give you a really good idea of how much you need to raise to really cover those expenses. Um, because there's kind of a saying in business, it's uh, going to take twice as long and cost twice as much for anything you do.
2: Now, you're operating in two of the more expensive areas in the country, Berkeley, and you're expanding into three stores with Artiste Coffee into San Francisco. What's your time frame of opening into San Francisco?
3: Sure. Um, So the time frame of opening into San Francisco, um, we're only committed uh, to a time frame for one location. We want to take one at a time. We want to make sure that we do each one right. So that first one we're looking to open in late March, early April.
2: And where's the location?
3: Yeah, that's in Hayes Valley on Octavia Street. Okay, um, really great neighborhood. Um, lots of food concepts are going in there, uh, so it's just a really great place if you want to spend an evening out. You got the SF Jazz Center there.
2: Now, the the negative on this potentially is that you know in the last, a lot of blue collar people kind of pushed out and being replaced with young millionaires from Google and Facebook. But we've also seen that with the restaurants where the rents are being raised to the point that, you know, some great old school things like Carnelian Room, they're gone. Um, How are you managing that rent cost or that potential space cost? Because it has to be astronomical.
3: It is astronomical. Um, In San Francisco, you're going to pay more for real estate than basically anywhere in the country outside of New York. And for us, you know, we have to think about that in terms of our business model. Okay. Uh, rent is your biggest expense after labor here in the Bay Area, so it's really significant. For us, we're managing that by looking at different size locations, so a smaller location. Um, even though a smaller location is going to cost more to rent in San Francisco than anywhere else, by lowering that monthly expense, you can help better set yourself up for success.
2: Speaking with Elvis Levan. He's the runs and founder of Artiste Coffee in Berkeley, a couple more coming into San Francisco in the next couple years. It may take a little bit more than a while, but he's going to get there. Tell us a little bit about the current coffee market. Like, we hear about funguses, and we hear about Brazil, and educate us as much as you can.
3: Sure. So I was down in Brazil uh, last year um, during the period where they're about to go into the harvest, and... They've had an incredible drought, just like we have in California, and that really affects coffee production. So Brazil's largest coffee producer in the world is producing less coffee this year than they had in many previous years, which is definitely affecting the market. We found that uh, price increases in terms of coffee have gone up 25% just in the last year. That changes day to day, though, uh, depending on the market.
2: So can you explain why our parents were so into Folgers and, like, we are so much more refined than our parental generation?
3: It has to do with access, Yeah. partly. Nobody ever wants, like, a bad product, but we're conditioned to expect whatever we're told, you know, to a degree is what we're supposed to be drinking. So that Folgers, Maxwell House, that's really what we call the first wave of coffee. That's, you know, coffee becomes an American staple because, you know, we threw all the tea in the harbor in Boston. Right. And, you know, it's patriotic a little bit, and also it's just comforting, you know. You build a habit. You say, I want my coffee in the morning, and if it doesn't taste like Folgers, then you wonder what you're drinking, uh, some people.
2: Real quick, in 10 seconds or less, what's the third wave of coffee coming?
3: The third wave of coffee is what we have now, which is the focus on gourmet and treating coffee more as an artisanal product, like wine rather than a commodity.
2: You rock. Good luck to you. It's Elvis Lieban, founder of Artis Coffee in Berkeley. You should check it out. The smells are unbelievable. Fresh roasted in the store coffee. And again, it is kind of like wine now. Um, and I totally agree with it. And like the whole lemur butt coffee thing, not a joke. There's some high-end coffee that will change the way you think of coffee. Again, it's Elvis Lieban with Artis Coffee in Berkeley. Death
1: upon vines His grace and passion friends, you like never before. Mm-hmm.
2: a so little Billy Ocean Bring us back. Be patient with us. She dashed by me and painted on jeans. All the heads turned because she was in the dream. In the blink of an eye, I knew. Her number and her name. Yeah, she said I was a tiger. She wanted to tame. Caribbean Queen, now we're sharing the same dream. And your, heart, your heart's beat just as one. No more love on the run. Okay, so Caribbean Queen... Many, many years ago, there was a company called Caribou Coffee, and whenever I talk about Caribou Coffee, I'd go, Caribou and coffee, or I'd I'd do something like, you know, on the radio, how I get kind of goofy on times, Caribou and queen. Um, We just talk coffee, and when you talk coffee, you know, Starbucks, obviously a monster investment. And there was that trend from Folgers Coffee Point One Zero to craft brewed coffee to now it's kind of like, you know fantastic high-end um, a delicacy, so to speak. So, and I don't quite say that quite right, but there was also a company called Pete's Coffee. Now, Pete's Coffee, as you know, is different than Starbucks. A lot of people in the fight of Pete's Coffee versus Starbucks, people would say, I like Pete's more. Co- Starbucks burns their coffee so you get addicted to it. It, has a, it ruins your, like, what have you. So Pete's Coffee and Tea, they enjoy the daily grind company owns and operates 200 coffee shops in California and half a dozen other states offering Java lovers about 25 types of whole bean and fresh ground coffee, 15 plus blends. Now, what's interesting to note about this is that they were publicly traded for a while, and I used to talk to the CEO because he was out of either Berkeley or Emeryville, and he'd come on my TV show, and I'm like, why do you only have four locations? And he's like, well, we're going to go to 16. Now he's at 200, but during the period of time he was publicly traded um, you can see that it was a little bit too much. It's publicly traded, you're, you know, you the screws are turned on you. How come you didn't open 400 more locations, or why are you just now getting into Chicago 14 years later? You should have been in Chicago long ago because it's cold in Chicago, and people when they're cold they drink coffee. But Pete's office does tea, and they they handcraft it. It's 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 quite unique. Now, caribou and coffee. So I made a lot of money on Pete's coffee as a publicly traded stock because I saw the trend of. Coffee 2.0 really come. I wanted a. We're not Starbucks play. So then when Caribou Coffee came out, I'm like, Caribou Coffee. Now that's going to be the next Pete's, and Pete's going to be the next Starbucks. Company serves Hot Joe to the Java herd. One more time Caribou Coffee. Company serves Hot Joe to the Java herd. Caribou operates four hundred and seventy coffee houses and two hundred franchises. They were founded in nineteen ninety two and they came public. And I lost money with caribou coffee. Do you know why? Wait, wait, okay. Okay, cute girl in the back with your arm up, I'll pick you. Okay. <laughs> you don't have to be afraid. It's it, you could you could answer this. You got this. Why did I lose money with caribou coffee and not with Pete's coffee? Because Caribou Coffee made their their coffee stores to look like mountain lodges. So they were expensive. There was a, a big head of an animal. And some people don't want that. Now I've thought about opening a ski school halfway between here and Tahoe. That's kind of a lodge that you can go and get drunk at while your kids are learning to ski kind of thing. And kind of have the whole coffee lodge and fake snow kind of thing going. And I, I think it's a good idea. But Caribou Coffee, they franchised, and again, they went kind of international, but when you went in their stores, you'd say, like, whoa, I'm at the Disneyland of coffee stores for Caribou. But you go into Pete's Coffee, and you're like, man, these wooden chairs look really comfortable. Which one do they cost more to build? Okay, I'm going to pick the hot brunette in the back. Hot brunette in the back. Oh, you don't have to be scared. This is an easy one. So, which which store costs more money to open and has more risk? Hmm, it's Caribou Coffee. Good answer. Good answer. So, I thought Pete's was gonna be just like Caribou, but Pete's had a, a leaner cost structure. Starbucks kind of, you know, Starbucks kind of made some mistakes along the way. Remember when they like sell music and they wanted to be a music label and they want to distribute movies and their free Wi-Fi, no free Wi-Fi, like. Uh, so talking with you know, some of the young hand roasters now where you go in the store and they roast it in front of you. It's a fruit. Everyone knows it's a fruit. Coffee comes from a cherry or something like that. And I'm going to stop talking because now I've lost all my knowledge in the last 15 minutes. But anyway, the lesson there is you have to really look at investments and compare them to each other. You may love Google, but who are you comparing Google to? Facebook? That's not fair. Google to Yahoo, maybe a little bit more fair when you start stripping out things like YouTube. But see, Google's got a lot of action going on. And at some point in time, when they break up the company, if they break up the company, maybe we'll value YouTube a lot higher because they don't really have a lot of competition there. Maybe. And then you'd compare Google Search to Yahoo Search, and you'd say, Google Search deserves a premium. And then you say, what else did Google got? Email? They probably have more Gmail users than Yahoo users. So you get the idea on where this is going and you know everyone's trying to get into shopping and same day delivery but investing is about learning to compare I compare MasterCard to Visa a little bit to American Express but the better comparison is MasterCard to Visa not MasterCard to Bank of America even though they both are financial companies they're not the same I'll compare Bank of America to Wells Fargo you don't compare Intel to Qualcomm although that would be a great merger you compare Intel to who's number two in semiconductors Nah. So then you're looking at their market. Like learning to invest is learning to compare, even if it's about coffee stores. I'm Rob Black. You can find me online at RobBlack.com. Twitter, me, Rob Black Show. YouTube, Rob Black Show. A lot of great investment downloads at NewFocusFinancial.com. That's NewFocusFinancial.com.